Hello and welcome to the Nevers podcast, a podcast dedicated to the discussion and dissection of every episode of the upcoming HBO series, The Nevers, an original sci-fi drama from writer, producer, God, Joss Whedon. I'm one of your hosts, Tyke, and joining me today is Gina. Hello, everyone. If you want to listen in, you can always find this podcast at hbothenevers.com and feel free to stalk us on social media we've got twitter facebook and instagram at hbothenevers you can find this podcast on all the usual trouble spots itunes stitcher spotify and pretty much anywhere else you can find podcasts you'll be able to find us so this week we've got some very interesting topics to discuss We'll be starting off with an introduction to Joss's works and talking about our favourite creations of his. From then, we'll be moving on to our initial reactions of Joss's new show and the hopes and expectations from it. Then a particularly favourite topic of mine, the greater Whedonverse theory. That should be fun. I'm excited. (laughs) From that, we'll be discussing directing duties. And then maybe if there's time at the end, which there will be, Listener submitted letters. We've got a few more of them and they're going to be cool. So without further ado, let's move on to the first subject. Our introduction to Joss Whedon's works and which we particularly love. Would you like to start us off, Gina? Yes. Oh, man, I can talk about this for probably 12 hours straight. So I will limit myself (laughs) to very briefly talking about my favorite Joss works, which is my favorite media anyway. So. (laughs) Joss Whedon has done television, film, and comics. It's incredible how he's created his own original IP and own original worlds. It's even hard for one writer and creator to do even just one, let alone more than one great one. My personal favorite has to be Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, Obviously, I'm a little biased because that's technically the first one I watched from him. And long story short, when my sister and I were in college, our best friend Josh, he told us, hey, have you guys ever seen Buffy the Vampire Slayer? And at that time, I had never watched a TV show, which is really weird to think about, but my parents never showed my sister and I television, um, which is really weird. So when he first told me that, I'm like, well, how long is it? And when Josh said, oh, it's seven seasons and there's this spin-off show called Angel. That's five seasons. And I was thinking, there is no way, like, this sounds cute. We'll try it. But there's no way I'm even going to finish Buffy, let alone also watch Angel at the same time when we have to. And um, even the title sounds kind of weird. And especially since it's obviously the first television show I had ever watched, I was like, I mean, how could a whole show be about a slayer fighting vampires? And like, what kind of name is Buffy anyway? You know, the usual thoughts that people had (laughs) about that title, which is the whole point of why Joss even called it that. But anyway, I remember watching the first episode and even though sometimes it's cheesy, I, I just knew there was something special. First of all, it had a female lead, which again, I hadn't watched any TV shows, but even I knew that was something special. And even at that time when I was in college, it was so many years after the show had aired at that point. So I was like, wow, so this is like really ahead of its time. I love the characters. Somehow you just fall in love with like Willow and Xander and Giles and even Cordelia. Like she's hilarious. Like it's just so, so good. And and looking back at it now, because I'm also a writer and I've tried to study screenwriting and television writing. It's such a perfect two-part pilot because it just sets everything up so well Uh, maybe on first watch maybe it could seem a little like okay I kind of want to get to the point like I kind of want to see where it's going but on rewatch and and in a lot of tv writing books it analyzes how that pilot is structured and uh, again I could talk about even just the pilot for six hours so Yeah, like I say, the pilot for Buffy is an absolute masterclass in what a pilot episode should do. It just hits all the bases and it hits them so well. It doesn't surprise me that sort of future generations are studying it for its educational value. Yeah, it, it's amazing. And I, and I have a friend that's starting to get into TV writing and he bought this book and he's like, hey, look, I want to show you something. And it literally brings up Buffy 
as the perfect pilot. And I love that. I, I always feel so validated when my friends, like, even if they haven't seen Buffy, they're like, oh, look, this book <laughs> just mentioned Buffy. I'm like, haha, I told you, it's amazing. <laughs> it's, and it's amazing the effect it had on modern day television. Like the structure and the language of Buffy, even though it's been, what, 20, almost exactly 20 years since it started, the effects are still felt to this very day. Like things like describing the main antagonist of a series as the big bad started with Buffy. The way they speak and the kind of the vaguely irreverent air that, that all his shows have, that's where it started. And you know, if you look at kind of the, a lot of the modern Marvel stuff, it's so influenced by his work that, I mean, you can't deny his yeah. effect. His oh, effect. totally. It gets bad when I'm on Twitter. I, I am always polite, but when people say like, oh, the Russo brothers, like, they totally get the Avengers the most. And like, oh, Joss like was too funny with the Avengers. And that's why I don't like Thor Ragnarok. And then I get super heated, always polite. But I always think back, like, honestly, without Joss Whedon, Marvel and the Marvel Cinematic Universe would not be where it's at today. And especially since after phase one, he also helped Kevin Feige and everyone sort of plot out what was going to happen in phase two. A lot of people don't know that. Like he was, he was a script doctor. He really built the skeleton for what we know of the MCU. Yeah. And, and he was, he helped write scenes, even though I, I don't like this film at all, but he helped write scenes for Thor The Dark World when they needed um emergency rewrites while they were filming mm. they literally they flew him <laughs> yeah it punch up they literally flew him in a helicopter on set and <laughs> wrote a scene for chris hemsworth and tom hiddleston um he also helped with captain america the winter soldier which makes perfect <sighs> sense to me because yeah, such a good film oh my god probably honestly in the top three in my opinion um, but for I sure, feel like sure. Joss Whedon probably has a little bit to do with that. Like, no offense, but I feel like he definitely helped. So, so yeah, definitely. There's, there's a few scenes that definitely got his stamp on them. Exactly, and and I personally think I'm with you till the end of the line is such a Joss Whedon line <laughs> that like I, I highly doubt he'll ever take credit for it. But like he had to have written that. That that's my theory. <laughs> I wouldn't be yeah. I, I wouldn't be surprised if that was true. But it is also quite a cap thing to say. So, for sure, for he's... sure. But it's such a yeah. It's it's an amazing cap line. Mm. But I feel like only Joss could come up with that. If that makes sense. Oh yeah, I, I get I get where you're coming from. My introduction to Joss was quite different because it was it was sort of almost by luck because this was back in day when there were only four TV channels and no internet. So it was quite hard to spread word about amazing TV shows. And I was just kind of tapping through the channels one day, not that it took that long. And I saw kind of a, a pretty lady walking down an alleyway and I was like, oh, this isn't going to end well. And then a vampire turns up like, oh, this is definitely not going to end well. And it didn't. But in, a, in such a twist, it ended quite badly for the vampire because it was Buffy was there and she did her usual thing and smacked the stuffing out of him. And I was like, oh, I wasn't expecting that. This is cool. Going to keep watching. And yeah, let's just instantly fell in love with the characters they're all just so great like there are very few bad characters in buffy even the evil characters are still fantastic you still have them he's one of in my opinion the best writers of villains that has ever worked in television yes like a villain can carry a show and no one writes a villain quite like Joss Whedon. Uh, and, and the thing is, like, I, I don't know why, but for me, villains are always my favorite part about things for some weird reason. I, I'm, I'm weird. I think watching The Lion King and, like, loving Scar just, like, <laughs> <laughs> influenced me. So sometimes when I watch movies, before I watch Buffy, I was like, eh, the villain was okay. And then the second I watch Buffy, even the master, you know, I was like wow like they they care about the villain the villain has scenes you're, you're starting to understand where he's coming from mm. i really like darla as well like and then obviously it, it just kept getting better Love and better darla. from there when it came to villains and don't get me started about season two because i could also talk about five days about season two spoik <laughs> love a bit of spoik although Christina's <laughs> accent was yeah, yeah quite painful at times it, it's funny because for me it's amazing but i could got... obviously understand uh you have a different perspective on that <laughs> but i've got to say for me love basically every tv show he's done you know buffy angel firefly serenity dollhouse dr horrible all fantastic 
But that's, in my opinion, his most underrated work has to be Much Ado About Nothing. Yes. Shakespeare is such a hard medium to adapt. There's been so many god-awful Shakespearean movies. And for me, only two have absolutely nailed it. One was, of course, Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. Yep, love that. Stupendous film. But on almost the complete opposite, that was this huge, gaudy, very modern, bright, flashy, singing songs, guns with swords names written on them, kind of spectacle. <laughs> and then on the complete opposite end of the scale, you've got Joss creating Much Do About Nothing. And it just looks like he's got some friends around to his house, set up a camera, and they're reading lines. Yes, it's got this, this amazing kind of relaxed feel to it. But everyone in it is fantastic because they're all Joss Whedon alumni. So, of course, they're fantastic. Right. But it's, it's, it so captures kind of the feel of a play. But it's on, it's on screen. It's, you can watch it whenever you want. You don't have to go to, a, you know, to the, the Globe to see it. It's right there. It's a disc away. I know. It, it, it's fascinating because um, I just showed Buffy and Angel for the first time to my friend Eve. We've been doing that the past seven months and we just finished. And she... She's a huge Shakespeare nut. So she had already seen Joss as much ado and she was like, eh, it's okay. And and now she wants to rewatch it and she's so excited because of Amy Acker and Alexis Denisoff. And and that's what I kind of told her. I'm like, look, I love Kenneth Branagh's much ado. That's obviously like the classical the way yeah. of uh, yeah, of portraying it. However, I I love modern adaptations of mm. Shakespeare and Especially if you put it in the lens that, like, Joss literally did this when he was on break while he was doing the first Avengers. <laughs> and he did it in two weeks, and it's in his house, and it, that's, that's beyond incredible. I think if you just go into it thinking, okay, this is an indie production, modern-day adaptation of Much Ado About Nothing, like you said, I think it's incredible. I think it's entertaining. Like you said, the actors are so great together, the energy, like... You just want to keep watching, and mm. it's so much fun to see when you do know about Joss Whedon's other works, to see all the alumni and how they're all acting together, and I love that Nathan Fillion is in it, even though he was terrified. Like, he told Joss, like, I can't do Shakespeare, and Joss is like, well, I don't care. You're going to do it. <laughs> I love that. And like any good director marshalling his forces, you know, Nathan Fillion thought he couldn't do Shakespeare, but he did. He nailed it because Joss had faith. Again, as long as you go in with the proper expectations, like like you said, it's not some grand spectacle. It's an indie production, but mm. I love I love that it's also black and white as well. It's Combination of the the cinematography is fantastic in the black and white tone yes. with the very classical dialogue, but in a modern setting, it's just it's a very sort of heady cocktail, and it just works. It so easily could have gone wrong. It could have come off as like bad community theatre. Exactly. But they just nailed it. It's just like this really clean, simple production, and it, it's all it needed. It's carried on the strength of the actors' performances. Oh, now I want to rewatch it like right now. <laughs> <laughs> I just can't wait to see what he can come up with next because it's really, like I said, it's really difficult to create your own original IP and original worlds. But if there's a person to do it, it is him. I mean, yeah, he's, he's already proven that this would be what his third time creating a, a large scale universe, maybe fourth. He's done it many, many times yeah. and he's proven that he is the absolute master of it. So it'll be very interesting to see what he comes up with. I, I know after his somewhat acrimonious parting with the Red Company, whose name we won't mention because we've already said it about five times this podcast. I'm, I'm still bitter about it, but... Yeah, but we all are. <laughs> I think he was wise to take a bit of a break, to go up, to relax and just kind of focus on getting his joss back, get his joss on. Yes, yes. But while I understood he needed to do that, a part of me inside was like, yeah, but when are you going to make a new show? Like, yeah, <laughs> your movies are great. We love your movies. Don't stop making the movies. But at the same time, make a show, make a new show, make it big, make it joss, make it cool and make it now. While I was a huge fan of his work on the Avengers, like that's not his forte. I want to meet new characters that he's created that I know I'm going to end up loving. So, like, especially, and then when I heard the idea for his new show, it was like, 
okay this is this is a bit out there but i think if anyone can do it joss can again both of us could also just talk about forever how much we love all of his work so <laughs> i mean we didn't we didn't even touch on the holy grail that is firefly his yes foreshadowed or any of his sci-fi work dollhouse which is a series i absolutely love exactly. but one thing i will say about dollhouse actually I nearly got into a an argument with a good friend of mine the other day we were talking about shows that we want brought back and of course everyone mentioned firefly i was like you know what honestly i think i would take a third season of dollhouse over a second season of firefly for one simple reason i feel like firefly it wasn't the perfect ending with serenity but it got an ending it also then got a couple of really really amazing comics yeah like um the shepherd story fantastic feels in books past fantastic comic and then you have dollhouse which had just literally limitless potential and we saw a few glimpses of what he was planning for the few i believe he had, he had pitched a six season arc and we got a few glimpses of what he was planning for those later seasons and it looked like it could have possibly been his best work and then it got cancelled and he was like, look, he made this two-parter episode. It was kind of a mini movie. He took it to the network and was like, look, this is what I'm doing. This is my end game. Watch this and then tell me I can't have four more seasons. And they watch it and they're like, that, that was pretty amazing. You can have one season. Mm. Yeah. So the second season, while it covers the bare bones of what he wanted to do, it, it isn't quite as satisfying as... I'm sure he wanted, as the fans wanted, after being so invested. How much of the first season did you see? I've, I've only, I saw the first half, but I literally remember the cliffhanger and it's killing me. I won't mention <laughs> character names, but yeah, it's basically we were, we were when Alan, Alan Tudyk shows up, question mark? Oh my God. That's yeah. literally where I left off and I am dying because it's literally been eight years, so. on it, like I don't, I don't mean to dial up your torment any further, but it's probably my favorite Alan Tudyk role. It is the way it goes is just stunning. <laughs> it's, a, it's literally killing me because I I was so happy when that happened, and I don't know what happens. <laughs> yeah, and the problem is the first season happens, and there's a very very dissatisfying second season, and then a kind of mini movie to wrap it all up. So it's a double feature length episode, and it just it it doesn't quite scratch the itch. I would really love to have like maybe a comic that could cover. In the same way they did with Buffy and Angel, a comic that concludes the arc how he wanted it to be, or another series, or even just send me the script so I can read them. But yeah, I, would, I need to know how that world was meant to be, because it was just limitless potential. Oh, see, now you're getting me to want to watch Dollhouse right now. <laughs> Sorry, I'll promise I'll stop eventually. <laughs> I won't. I'm never going to stop. <laughs> Until the world understands what we lost when we lost Dollhouse. I think it, as a show, it really highlighted how versatile Eliza Dushku is as an actress. Yeah. I mean, while she was great as Faith, and while Faith did have a bit of development in the later seasons, she was a bit, not one note, because Joss doesn't do one note, but she had a very specific character to her. Whereas in Dollhouse, as you know, you know it's every episode is basically a different character. And it just showed how amazingly versatile she is. I can only think of one actress in a tv show that has pulled off that kind of level of versatility or more or more and that is uh tatiana maslany in orphan black i know everyone says that and i really want to watch it's it it's absolutely worth watching as soon as possible yeah i oh see how many things i have to watch and rewatch. <laughs> but we, we briefly touched on it earlier and then got distracted by doll's house and firefly but our topic two of discussion today is our initial reactions on hearing about Josh's new show and our hopes and expectations for it. We've sort of covered this already, but do you want to go a bit deeper into that? Well, yes, I believe I'm trying to remember what social media medium I found out about Josh's new show, but I freaked out. I retweeted everything I could about it. Um, I believe I like, had a Facebook post like, oh my God, this is what I'm talking about. He's creating new characters. Like, I'm sure like every single Joss Whedon fan, we've been wanting not only new characters, but a new TV show. Like, I'd be excited mm. if he was creating a new movie because, duh, it's him. But the fact that it's a TV show and then the fact that HBO 
was going to produce it is like, and then I think I was even excited before I found out what it was about. I, I think the headline probably just said like, Joss Whedon, I've, I forgot the headline, but something like to create a new TV show for HBO called The Nevers. So like, Joss Whedon and HBO already. And I, I briefly mentioned it, I believe, in the last podcast. I'm not a Game of Thrones fan. I, I saw the first two and a half seasons, and it just personally wasn't for me. But I can definitely appreciate the amazing aspects about Game of Thrones. So, again, when I heard Joss Whedon and HBO, that was it for me. Like, I don't care what it's about. And then I read what it's about in the article, and <laughs> it, it's literally just putting everything I love together. Like a female group and they're going to have supernatural powers and it's in Victorian London. Like I, I can't. <laughs> and I'm sure I'm, I'm not the only person that felt that way. Not at all. I, I imagine that's all the kind of the weed nights out there had very similar reaction. I know I had a very similar reaction. I saw a thing about him making a new TV show and my hive already was just at 10 knowing that he was making anything new. I don't care what it's about who where why just all i care about is it was happening i was like yay and then I, I saw it was for hbo and it was like why have i never that's the perfect pairing like that would be, be brilliant and then i read this description for it and i was like okay that's like that sounds like a very joss thing to do and i'm, I'm quite glad that now we finally got we're getting a new tv show for the first time in so many years and it really feels like he's going back to his roots and i think that's very much what he needed to do after his work with um, the Red Ones and kind of after having a couple of seasons series that maybe didn't pan out quite the way he wanted them to, to just return to what made him this shiny golden god in the first place. I think it's a very, very clever move. And, and then, then to do it on a network, which has shown, you know, as we covered uh, last episode when we were talking about whether HBO is the right network, I think it, to do it, to be working with a network that have shown in the past that they're willing to take these kind of leaps of faith, I think it was all very, very well done. I'm very excited to see where this goes. I'm very lucky. I go to San Diego Comic-Con every single year. I have for the past probably eight years. Ah, <laughs> Sorry. <so> and <laughs> and I've always gone, every obviously, every time he has a panel, I have to go and I camp out. And I've met him a few times at Comic-Con, whatever. Anyway, the point is, he was going to create a comic book called Twist, and it was going to take place in Victorian London, and it was going to have a female protagonist. And I was really excited about that, because it was a comic book, and it sounded great. And then the next year, I think that's when he announced his Dr. Horrible comics, which I haven't read, which, again, I'm being a bad fan. Again, he always excited about new projects, but he still seemed a little sad. So I'm so excited that he's creating a new TV show because I hope this will show mm. this modern society how great he can actually be because with all the complications of Age of Ultron, and I, th I think when people even think about the first Avengers, they don't think, oh, that's Joss Whedon at his best. They think, oh, look, it's such a great Marvel movie, um, which is interesting. So I feel like The Nevers is finally, you know, for the people that haven't, unfortunately, mm. for the people that haven't watched Buffy or Angel or Firefly or Dollhouse or any of his works, you know, because we're, the Whedonverse, like, or the Whedon fandom is huge, but we're still kind of like, in a weird way, like a niche yeah. group. So I think this is finally, ironically, going to push him into the mainstream when it comes to just fandom and, and people in general that haven't seen his TV shows and don't think about him when they think about the first two Avengers films. Mm, I think that's a, that's a very good point. I think it's, cause I mean, it, it's, it's been 20 years since Buffy and he's had a lot of, and I think if Firefly has shown us anything is that Joss is very, very popular with a, in general terms, fairly small crowd. His work is always really well loved, but it doesn't have a lot of mass appeal. And I think while his work with the Avengers did have huge appeal, it was still him working with, it wasn't really his work, which is why I think a lot of people don't immediately associate those films with him and why his name has somewhat fallen off of late. But I think that's actually a good thing because then when The Nevers comes out to HBO, who is a network that are on fire at the moment, a lot of people will go in 
with no expectations. They won't be going in thinking, yes, this is the new Joss. It's going to be the best thing ever. Or we'll trash it on Twitter. They'll go in thinking, oh, a new show looks quite fancy. I'll hit play and see what happens. And they'll go in with an open mind, which is the best you can hope for when that you're is starting so true. a new world. Because then not only will they be blown away and they won't expect it, then they're going to be able to just go watch all of his stuff for the first time. Mm. And that is very, <laughs> I'm very jealous as well. I think Joss was in a very similar position, although probably a few rungs up the ladder compared to someone like James Gunn, who had who'd made a few films. But it, they were all quite niche. They were very popular with a small crowd. I think Joss was in a similar position where he had a few shows that were insanely popular, but had never really broken into kind of wider acclaim. So fingers crossed he can finally push in this time and become what he deserves to be, which is a household name. I think one of the things that's so amazing about Joss's work, and it actually leads quite well into topic three, is the connectivity of it all. Not just the obvious connections like Buffy and Angel, but... If you probe a little deeper, and if you are willing are willing to make a few connections in your mind, maybe you're a little shaky. There is there is a theory out there. It's known as the Greater Whedonverse theory. It's one of my favourite theories. I'm I'm a bit of a sucker for a conspiracy theory, and the Greater Whedonverse theory is one of my favourite. So get your tinfoil already because this is going to get a bit weird. I know I'm excited because I I know really like little to nothing about this Whedonverse theory, so I'm ready. Basically, the, I'm not going to go full tinfoil hat six hours deep <laughs> in the darkness with my torch because I don't think anyone really wants to hear that. But what I'm going to do is I'll give you a basic outline of the of the skeleton, and we can build more meat onto it as we progress. The basic theory holds this. Buffy the Vampire Slayer, spoiler warning for a 20-year-old show, ends with Buffy empowering all the potentials to become Slayers. It's awesome. She then, if you read the comics, fucks off to Scotland and hides there. And it's great, but at this point, the, uh, the Watchers Council were like, okay, we are the Watchers, we guard the Slayers. And um, there aren't any, they're all in Scotland and they're not talking to us because we've been dicks to them for seven years. So they start planning for eventualities. They then run into the remains of the Initiative, who we all remember were the science techie soldier morons from before. It then gets a bit strange because we then jump across to Angel. And in Angel, that series finishes far too soon, with the Black Thorn being broken and the senior partners of Wolfram Hart coming down to Earth. Now, the Whedonverse theory holds that the Watchers Council teamed up with the Initiative and found a way to seal the senior partners away. There was one problem. Every few years, a sacrifice had to be made. That sacrifice had to be done in a very particular, almost ritualistic fashion, because, I mean, it's a sacrifice, they're always ritualistic. That led into the cabin in the woods. Mm. The belief is that the the shadowy company that runs the cabin in the woods is actually run by the remnants of the Watchers Council and the Initiative. They seal everything away in an attempt to essentially no longer need Slayers because now they don't have any. This all goes really well for about 10 years and then a stoner and (laughs) his sort of, they kind of implied they'd hooked up at the end but they sort of didn't. And you know, the, the, the virgin sacrifice who isn't a virgin basically decides, you know what, Sod this planet, I'm done. There's no, no sacrifice. And the last thing we see in that film, again, spoiler warning, huge claw of the senior partners bursting out of the floor. Earth is destroyed, no longer livable. So what do we do? We head to space. The remnants of the Watchers Council, the Initiative, and now the senior partners and Wolfram and Hart, they form an alliance. Hmm. Why does that name seem familiar? Oh, that's right. <laughs> that connects to Firefly. It gets funny. It gets better. A few years, so the alliance takes over. There's a, there's a war. It doesn't end well if you're wearing a brown coat. But new universes brings new problems. And they're like, you know what? Well, really great problems. Slayers. So they search for ladies with increased abilities. But being as they are the initiative and the Watchers Council, and they're all kind of tools, 
they're like, well, what if we do a bit of testing on them just to see if they're the right ones? And that's how we end up with River. That is the the bare bones of the theory. But I think you'll agree that it holds yeah. a certain amount of yeah, weight. Yeah, I, I love that. There is, it's brilliant, isn't it? It's like, it's just, it's so crazy. But it, it all sort of has an internal logic that, that does kind of work. It gets even better because you can add in things like a dollhouse in because the doll the, the houses in the system the like the uh, the mental conditioning they use is their attempts to turn humans into kind of quasi slayers when that fails because spoilers because you, know, you haven't seen the series like that goes off the rails so they have to try something else and that leads to river and then even it's not technically a joss whedon show but the showrunner's surname is whedon so we'll allow it and They've now said that from season six onwards, it's in its own universe. It's not part of the MCU continuity. Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. There is talk that even including their shattered version of S.H.I.E.L.D. Molding that, because the latest season of that deals with the Earth being destroyed, which could well have been by the senior partners. That kind of molds all that and molds the remnants of S.H.I.E.L.D. into the Alliance. Yeah, like it's it's the, the problem is with a type with a name like the Alliance with no real kind of fleshing out of it, you can really add whoever you want into that, and it still holds true. You could you could say the Mister Men join, and it, it right. works. Do you know when this theory started? Was it after Cabin in the Woods came out? I believe it was Cabin in the Woods was the linchpin which connected it all. Okay. Before that, we were just like, what if something happened at the end of Buffy, and that's what happened to Firefly, and then Cabin in the Woods came out, and they're like, oh. That's what happened after Buffy that connects it to Firefly. Right. We have a we have a theory. I believe it first emerged like tw- it was twenty fifteen ish, but I think it may have been before that. Kind of early, like late twenty thirteen, early twenty fourteen was the first real kind of emergence. Yeah, because uh, people that potentially thought that there was a link between Buffy and Angel and Firefly. I could imagine. I could just imagine them watching Captain in the Woods in theaters, like, "Oh my god, it's Christmas. I found it!" <laughs> like, the question then becomes: If we accept that theory as a thing, if we believe that, where do we think the Nevers is going to fit in that timeline? And like, what effects do we think the events of the Nevers will possibly have on that greater shared universe? Yeah, I love that. And actually, I'm going to bring this up, and I might have bring bring it up before, but I just remembered in Age of Ultron, there's a wolf, ram, yes. and heart during Thor's vision of what Asgard could be. So, like, that I almost feel like kind of fits Definitely. with the Weaver theory. A hundred percent chance that was put in. As a nod to Wolfman, there, there is no doubt in my mind that that, especially when you consider that that scene, he was forced to add that. So when we started, he was like, "Well, you know, what? I'm going to give you your stupid scene, but I'm going to, I'm going to stick a wolf right. and heart in there because I'm still directing this thing." So with the Nevers, what's really interesting about that, the way Joss has described it, and I'm not going to say it word for word, but something about how, oh yeah, so Joss has described it as. An epic science fiction drama about a gang of Victorian women who find themselves mm. with unusual abilities, relentless enemies, and a mission that might change the world. So that whole might change mm. the world, it's interesting. The fact that he highlights that these are unusual powers. Like maybe these guys are like the progenitors or these ladies are kind of the, the first wave that will then lead to other things. Because I was thinking Wolfman Hart was meant to be founded slightly before the victorian era wasn't it It was kind of late 1700s whereas the victorian era was more kind of late 1800s so it's not impossible that we could see a kind of early version of them or some kind of uh, kind of we can see there's gonna be some kind of dark organization involved some seedy english underbelly type of course the question then becomes if this is what we're expecting to happen, is Joss going to expect that we expect that and then try and throw us off? Because he is aware of this theory's existence, would he then really try? Because this is, this is his first series in a while. It's his first series with HBO. It's his first series set that far back. Could it be possible that he's doing all of this specifically to distance this work from his previous creations 
I was actually planning to expand slightly upon the sort of bare bones skeleton that I've given here in an article for our website. So if any listeners want to read up more and even discuss their thoughts on how the Nevers could connect, you will be able to find that all on the website, hbothenevers.com. Feels like a solid place to end topic three and move on to our fourth and final topic for the evening, directing duties. Former Game of Thrones and now the Nevers executive producer, Bernadette Caulfield, has brought several of her Game of Thrones colleagues over to work on the Nevers, most notably producer Duncan McGough and production designer Gemma Jackson. If Joss is not the sole director for season one of the Nevers, might we see directors from Game of Thrones come over and direct an episode or two? Miguel Sapochnik, perhaps. Do we think there's any chance? Do we think he's going to try and take it all on himself or will he outsource the work that's actually a really great question here's here's the thing for joss whedon and directing and me i think he's a very underrated director because i guess he's known so well for being a writer that people forget that he doesn't have to be as good of a director (laughs) and obviously when you direct something that you write it's a little easier because you know exactly what you want from that specific line However, I think the the body from Buffy the Vampire Slayer season five is like one of the best directed things I've ever seen. Mm. I think it's perfectly summed up by um, everyone's favorite episode, Hush, which he wrote out of spite because someone had accused him of only being able to write dialogue. So he wrote a whole episode without any dialogue. And in that episode, the the, the directing was superb. And it, it goes to show that even if you strip away what you believe to be his strengths, he still absolutely nails it. Yeah, it's a really interesting thing if Joss is going to direct all of it. I personally think he won't just because there's... It's not too many episodes, but just because there's more than a few. I feel like if it was just a mini series with like three episodes or something, he definitely would. But I think I think it's a lot of work to do 10. I totally agree. I think, I mean, if you look at modern tv series you almost never have one person directing an entire season the only show i can think of just off the top of my head that has a single director for a whole show is mr robot and i think if anyone would tell you not to have a single director for a whole season it would be sam esmail director of mr robot because he's gone on record as saying it is draining I have a distinct suspicion that Joss will probably write and direct the first two and probably the last two, maybe three, and then leave the body of the series for other people. Yeah, and there's just this magic, obviously, when Joss writes a script and directs it again, like I mentioned earlier, you just know you're in for an amazing ride. So the more he can direct, the better. I personally would also love if somehow he brought back some of the Buffy and Angel directors. I think he, he's got a talent for finding other writers and directors that really understand his work and what he's trying to do. And so that he knows that when he leaves it in their hands, we're going to get consistent quality. I personally would love some of the Buffy directors that have directed a lot of episodes are like James A. Kottner, David Solomon, David Grossman. I would, I would definitely be behind that. I have a distinct suspicion that Joss will be taking on that somewhat nebulous title that has become oddly important of late, which is showrunner. You see that quite a lot. It's weird, what I've always thought was quite odd. Everyone talks about, oh, who's the new showrunner for whatever show? And they put, they put a lot of weight behind it, but it's not in the credits. True, it's often... Oh, it's, it'll often be the creator or the director that's the showrunner, but quite often not. It isn't um, a perfect example of this, and of you know how a good showrunner can either make or break a series would be the last few seasons of Doctor Who. Yeah, totally. Where we had, I mean, love him or hate him, Stephen Moffat was in charge for a very long time, and he really set the tone for the sea for his whole era. And I have a distinct suspicion Joss would do something quite similar. He may not write or direct, but even when he's not credited as writing, I have a feeling he'll still have last say on all the scripts. And even when he's not credited as directing, I wouldn't be surprised if he was on set, just keeping an eye over the director's shoulder, just, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, move, 
do do something a little just do do it this way please and then letting him do the rest of the work themselves yeah i i don't see him not always being on set pretty much <laughs> for the most part obviously he'll probably be busy while other directors potentially direct episodes he may be busy looking at editing or doing pre-production for maybe the two last episodes he might do so obviously he won't be there 24 7 but like you said in, in Buffy and Angel even when he isn't credited as directing or writing he was there on set mm. so because really the only connection between those two series is the network they're on they have very very different styles in basically every way that matters that said, I wouldn't be surprised if we did see a few names that we're familiar with kind of reoccur in the casting. People like, um, what was his name? The guy that did um, Battle of the Bast. Oh, <laughs> oh, I feel like I need you now. Miguel Sapochnik, who was mentioned in the intro text. I wouldn't be surprised if we see his name crop up because he is a very, very talented director. And when he's good at, he's good at doing kind of the, the large scale action scenes. So I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if he joined in. If it big, if they decide to go kind of epic with the action scenes, I wouldn't be surprised if they drafted in directors like him for those episodes. And, and again, it's interesting. Um, I haven't again, seen a lot of the later parts of game of Thrones, so there might be amazing directors that Game of Thrones had. I just hope if they do bring on Game of Thrones directors for the Nevers, I hope they understand Joss's style. I think there is, there, there is definitely something to be said for kind of picking the right person for the message you want to convey in that episode. If you're going for a larger action type episode, bring in someone that you know is good at handling those kind of scenes. If you're doing a more a smaller, more character-driven episode, bring along someone that you know can film those kind of kind of intimate scenes without overwhelming the mood of the episode. We have an email from the man here. If that is your real name, that's awesome. If it's a pretend name, it's still awesome. Oh, and it's actually <laughs> it's a quite related question. IMDB lists a ton of former Game of Thrones behind-the-scenes people, producers, art department, etc. Should I take this as a vote of confidence from HBO? That is a solid question. And actually, there's two ways we can think about this. What, what are your opinions on that? I feel like with studios, if someone does a great job from a project that they've done and it's like success that has already happened, then there is no reason why they wouldn't want those people to work on something that they do trust is going to be great because if it's worked before, it'll work again. So I personally think it is a vote of confidence from HBO. And that's actually really exciting because again, if they trust these people that have worked on this show before, they know how to communicate to make it be the best possible thing it can be, at least when it comes to behind the scenes. Well, I do think this is a show of confidence. They're, you know, they're, they're bringing their A game because they really want this to succeed. You could also, if you chose, view it as they're a little unsure of whether it's the, the, the concept of the show or they're a little unsure about some part of it. So they're bringing in a lot of, you know, producers, art department, directors, writers, etc., that they know are good just to try and smooth out the variables, so to speak. If they know that they've got good production, good art, good directors, that just lessens the chances of a catastrophic failure, if you know what I mean. Yeah, no, that's a really good point, and that's definitely another way to look at it. It's so fascinating because we'll never really know. Honestly, I don't think that's why they're doing it. Right. But I had that, I had that thought when I was looking at this question, and I was thinking, like, is, is it a vote of confidence? I, mean, <laughs> right. I think it is, but you could quite easily view it as them as HBO kind of hedging their bets just to make sure that there's some things they know might go wrong they want to make sure that there's at least as many things that they know definitely won't go wrong <laughs> really great question D-man yeah he is the man <laughs> could be a lady to first yeah. <laughs> then Jamarco Martin emailed in will the show have a black superhero short but important question what are your thoughts 
wonderful question. Um, so I am a Latina, so diversity is incredibly important for me. I definitely think Hollywood has made strides, but not enough. And I would love a black superhero. I will be sad if there isn't one. I, I don't think there's any more excuses for there not to be every type of representation. And I definitely think Joss cares about that. I, I, I totally understand in his previous shows, like there definitely could have been more, 100%. Um, but I think especially now it's the time to do that because there's no more excuses. And I think he does care about that. I mean, his writing team, which I, I would also love for this to be a topic because he posted a photo. His writing team seems diverse. I believe there's a black woman. There's an Asian man. There's obviously other female writers. So if he's already looking at it through behind the scenes, I definitely think his main cast will be diverse as well. That's that's my opinion. No, I think that's a, that's a very good opinion. And I'd have to say, when you make these kind of historical era specific shows like for instance a lot of people complained that game of thrones was super white and it was but it was based around kind of the war of the roses and at that time it was based on like it's an english themed show and at the time maybe there wasn't the diversity there is now so they've got that excuse however this particular show is set during victorian era britain and that excuse goes absolutely out the window at that time britain in our more acquisitive angry congery days that they were we had already taken over australia new zealand america obviously south america parts of africa parts of asia india we had people all over the globe and on the flip side of that people from all over the globe were coming to britain uh, that that was really the start of Britain's multiculturalism. There's literally no reason not to have a fully diverse cast in this show. It would be historically accurate to have one, and in fact would be inaccurate not to. So I'd have to assume there's going to be a variety of colours. There'll probably be um, LGBTQ plus members of the team. Just, Which would be amazing. It really would. And I think of the day, it would be pretty cool to have a one of the Nevers, or maybe one of their kind of supporting cast, to be missing a limb, and to be an actual actor or actress with that is actually missing a limb. Yes. And then have like they probably need a CGI, but have like a um sort of steampunky copper prosthetic. How cool would that be? <laughs> That would be amazing. Like imagine kind of an Iron Man-esque adaptive robotic no, no. arm. Now I'm going to be so sad if that doesn't happen. <laughs> I know, I slightly ruined it for myself when oh. I had that idea. Joss, if you're listening, that one's a freebie. <laughs> Take it. I don't even care. I'll just be happy that it's in the show. And I would also love um, actors from the deaf community and the blind community to be a part of it too. Because, yes, I very care very much care about historical accuracy that's personally a thing i write the most are like biopics or things set in the past however i feel like the second you start introducing science fiction or fantastical elements even if things are based off things i personally don't see that as an excuse to not have a diverse cast so the second it's a science fiction, it's a science fiction epic drama, like you could do whatever you want. There could be aliens, right? So if there could be aliens, if there could be anything, you could create anything, something new that's not even an alien, it's something else, like then we should be able to have all types of diversity. One thing I would say, if they do include a blind character, please, please, can we not get another daredevil-esque martial arts master who overcomes their blindness by using their other senses yes. it's been done literally a billion times please be more creative <laughs> and then to just go in the complete opposite direction something he's done before that was cool that i want to see him do again would be his much maligned uh alien resurrection which i thought was fantastic and everyone else seemed to hate in that there was a character 
thing is, I first saw it and thought, that's not a really, that's not an alien film. It's very different. Then I found out Joss Whedon had written it. And I was like, oh yeah, it's a Joss Whedon alien film. Now everything makes sense. I should have known. Everyone was quipping. Ridley becomes a superhero. And there's a guy in a wheelchair who, you know, he drives everywhere. And at one point he just starts taking bits off his wheelchair and just constructs them into a shotgun. And kind of, 50, sort of 14, 15 year old me saw that and was like, that is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Yes. I would quite like him to do like do something along those lines, have sort of a, a person in a wheelchair that's kind of, but it's it's a very technologically advanced, again, I'm going to bring the word up again because it's my, it's my favorite thing, a sort of steampunk creation, like, you know, maybe sort of a, walks along on spider legs instead of wheels, or it's a self-propelled wheelchair with miniguns on it. Just let, let your imagination run wild. It can happen. And I think even the exciting part, let's say we start watching the show and it doesn't have, somehow, it doesn't have any of these things that we want. If the show continues into season two, like, it could always happen. Yeah. And so one thing we have to remember, like, yes, this is an HBO series. They have very deep pockets, but they're not infinite. Right. There's a reason that there wasn't much ghost in the last seasons of Game of Thrones because they needed the budget for the dragons so i mean while it would be cool to have you know a, a steampunk prosthetic or a wheelchair with legs we have to remember if that's going to be a character that's in the show every episode they can't be spending 75 percent of their budget just to animate the wheelchair right so it's it's great to theorize these things but they're probably not going to actually make it into the show excellent question we, we got a bit off topic there but i think we still we answered this question, so it's all good. Yeah. Oh, look who's back. It's Virgil Bowie again. Or Bowie, if you're nasty. He's <laughs> back again. And he would like to know... Oh, another great question. He's good. Joss is returning to TV with his own IP. While many of us love Firefly and Dollhouse, he hasn't had a real TV hit since Angel. His reputation as a filmmaker and as a private person has gone downhill lately. What I mean is I think this show will either make him relevant, relevant again or it could potentially ruin his reputation permanently. I'm really hopeful for the show to be good, but you never know. That is a great and quite cutting question. Thank you very much for that, Berger. Oh man, another one I could probably spend six hours. Um, <laughs> yeah. I kind of hit this a little bit earlier when I was talking about Joss and his San Diego Comic-Con panels and how he looked a little mm. defeated, literally apologizing to the entire 6,000-person room about Age of Ultron. Um, and, you know, he had to leave Twitter, and then now he's back on Twitter, which is a good sign, in my opinion, for his mental health. However, there's still the occasional person that brings up certain things about him. And, again, I still feel like some of the modern audience, they haven't seen his work. They could have a negative opinion about him without really knowing too much of his stuff. So what I'm kind of scared about is if there's even a line in the Nevers, even one line that is like potentially you could misconstrue it to be anti-feminist or anything of that sort. I just feel like people on social media will like freak out. And that wouldn't be the best thing for him, right? Or for anyone, really. Uh, so yeah. that is that that fear that I have about that. Because it, if it could go south real quickly, that's what happened with Age of Ultron. I, I personally think some people didn't understand Black Widow's line about her being a monster. And that, yeah. that, that um, again, won't go into that, but... I'm scared about Yeah, that. I think that is the absolute last subject I should be discussing. So I'm going to leave that <laughs> off to the left over there. You can discuss that some other time when I am not in the conversation. But I totally agree with you. Yeah. But no, yeah. But he's not coming into this series as strong as he would have been if this were released maybe five or ten years back. But I think like we discussed earlier, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because what that means is that expectations going in are going to be quite low. So hope, fingers crossed. So if people go in not expecting it to be super amazing, when it is, they'll be pleasantly surprised. But I think one thing you said, which is 
quite sadly accurate these days and really needs to go away is he can make 10 hours of amazing drama full of strong characters of all genders of all inclinations and origins and they can all be they can all have their moment to shine they can all have great deep arcs and then there can be one line one 10 second line five minutes before the series ends that can be construed as marginally potentially problematic and twitter will laser focus on that one line and they will not let it go and they will campaign and they'll get the show cancelled and they'll get joss strung up and they'll get hbo right. burned to the ground right and yeah like i think there's, there's always a chance but i'm, I'm hoping he, he now in in yeah it's 2019 we're very aware that if you say something that can be construed as problematic you will be kind of attacked for it so i'm hoping that they will kind of make sure that doesn't happen yeah like it's tough because i always go back and forth one side of it is it's amazing that people are calling things out because without doing that i don't think change could happen as quickly but at the same time sometimes things are misconstrued or the way people attack someone on social media is just wrong Mm. Like, they shouldn't be saying the things they're saying. So it's this weird, like, we had to find some middle ground because it's very important to get our point across, but we can't vilify someone just because, like we said, like, one line is wrong. Um, However, I think with his writing team, I think with the HBO producers, I hope they'll learn from some of the mistakes that Game of Thrones had in that sense. You would hope with so many people working on it that they'll be able to call each other out if anything like that happens that's my hope yeah i think i think that is one of the benefits to having a broad spectrum of people in your writer's room they they say nothing great was ever created by committee and while i while i do tend to believe there is some validity to that claim it is always great to have different voices when you're building something because you need that variety otherwise you can get into a very specific way of thinking and you'll think you're doing amazing but actually you're doing amazing for a small group and then the other 90 percent of the populace think you're a moron and we can't have that these days yeah in my opinion that's what happened to series four of the bbc sherlock it was just mark gatiss and stephen moffat and they usually have steve thompson as a third writer but i feel like without steve thompson it was just mark gatiss and stephen moffat just kind of going crazy and doing whatever they wanted without someone else's opinion kind of pinning them down back to reality and that's a little different because at least Sherlock wasn't problematic per se it was just in my opinion not as good as it yeah honestly horrible (laughs) (laughs) it was so bad I can't even talk about how sad and mad I still am and that's a whole other topic but in that same vein, in that same vein, it is good to have other people to like rein you down or kind of check you to make sure that you're doing your best work and you don't do anything problematic. So fingers crossed that this will be his entrance into the, the great pantheon. Thank you for that one, Berger. That was a really excellent question. And we, I think we may have to revisit that subject again in the future because there is a lot to say. And then the last question today is from D-Man again. So he just couldn't stay away. They couldn't stay away. Okay, Whedon once said he had several seasons of Firefly planned from the beginning. Do you think he's planned that much ahead for the Nevers? Ooh, that's a good one. Do you have any thoughts on that, Gina? I would assume he does only because it's him, but also um, because... I don't know why I keep coming back to this, but there's something about him having that comic book called Twist already potentially probably being written like already. Like they premiered a cover of that comic at Comic-Con and everyone was so happy and freaking out. So I feel like Joss has had the idea for this TV show for a while and it only helps you plan things out for a season if you do have future things ahead and... Usually when you go into meetings with studios and networks, that is a question they ask. 
and, and I, I, sometimes I hate this question because it's really difficult, but sometimes they would ask something like, okay, three seasons from now, episode five, what do you think an episode idea would be? And oh, that's wow. really difficult. Yeah, it's it's impossible, right? But mm. I feel like I feel like if you know your show, if you at least have a general outline, you could kind of on the spot think of a potential storyline. So almost by default, I feel like he has to have things planned. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if they went into the pitch meeting and they're like, "All right, season three, episode five, what happens?" Okay, picture this: fade to black. First scene, sweeping camera, and like he just lists off the whole oh, script totally. for the episode just because fuck you, I'm Joss Whedon. Literally. And knowing him, if he did pitch an ep- that episode three years down the line, when it, when it came time to record season three, episode five, a few of the ideas would actually have snuck in. And this actually is a great question because it is a subject I've got a bit of a bee in my bonnet about. I watch a lot of TV because I don't like going outside. And one thing that really annoys me, and I, I won't name drop any shows because I don't want to sandbag anyone. One thing that really annoys me a lot, and especially with TV from America, is you'll have these shows. And because there's always this fear that this season could be your last season, and quite often is, no one ever wants to really get invested and really start laying the groundwork for a multi-season arc because for all they know they'll get two-thirds of the way through it and then be cancelled and there'll never be a payoff so no one wants to take the time to really build these plots because they never like there's there's no point you've got to make sure that each season has a definite like a definite beginning middle and end and maybe you can include like a two-minute stinger right at the end of the finale just to make sure that people come back for that next season, the first episode. But there's no point building any real continuity because you, it can all be taken away in a second. It's like one of my favourite shows of recent years, the second time this show I'm mentioning it, is Mr. Robot. And they did something really, really clever. Like they were picked up for two seasons, two further seasons, just off the strength of the pilot. And season two, when I first watched it, I was actually a little disappointed because it didn't, like, there wasn't really your typical season arc. There was a beginning, middle and end, but the beginning was mostly dealing with season one and the end was mostly setting up season three. So I, it felt a little, a little unsatisfying. But then you get season three and it was amazing. And you realize the only reason it could be that amazing it's because all the setup for it was done in season two. They could hit the ground running with season one because all the groundwork was already laid. And the, the reason it was so sort of strange to me when I was watching it was because I'm, uh, people are now so used to the very kind of delineated season arcs that you get these days because there is no greater continuity. But actually, when it pays off like this, it's stupendous. So I'm really hoping if... I mean, he knows he's not guaranteed anything, but I'm really, really hoping that he's done some background did like, look, please just guarantee me at least like two, maybe three seasons. I've got an arc planned. This is what I'm gonna do. It's gonna be amazing. It's gonna make you billions. It's gonna be bigger than anything you've had before. Just let me tell this arc and we're good. So I'm really hoping he's got at least kind of three seasons planned. And I'm really hoping that HBO give him the chance to tell that story. That is such an amazing point that I've never thought of because I personally don't watch a lot of TV still because Buffy ruined television for me because nothing's half as good. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I love, I love that point that you made about how American television tries to not have a multi-season arc. However, knowing Joss... The, the famed season five of Buffy where that could have potentially been the end. I feel like he creates such amazing characters that even if in this first season, it feels like it's the end of a first season, you something will happen where you'll want to see the reactions of the characters and you have so many potential storylines in your head. So kind of like season five of Buffy. Sorry if you guys haven't watched it. Spoiler alert. Um, Buffy dies and... That shot of all of them reacting, right? If Buffy ended there, it, it would have been great. But you see how it's it's character work. It's it's almost like a a character cliffhanger in a way that you just want to see everyone's reactions and like how they're gonna build their life without Buffy. So 
season five works great on its own, but you could also have another season. And I hope Joss does that as well. Like, fine, make season one its own story, but build enough seeds, especially with the characters that you'd want more. And I personally think he's really good at that because he hates cliffhangers. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's my hope is that it'll, it'll, it'll be so character driven and the characters will be so good that in a way it will still feel like a multi-season arc. I had, I had heard, I don't know if this is true or not, but I had heard that actually Joss wanted to end the series after five. And it was the network that convinced him to write more. I remember when I first saw the finale for season five, there was the previously on Buffy. And it had, it, like, it started right from season one, episode one, did a little real flash of all of Buffy. So I think yeah, I think he he kind of he was definitely debating finishing it there. But if he had, we never would have got one of the greatest TV episodes of all time. Once more with feeling. That was another excellent question from D Man there. If any of you out there listening have more questions, feel free. We can be contacted through all the usual places: Twitter, email, Facebook at the HBO the Nevers. We will try and answer all your questions each episode but if we get too many we will add them to future episodes thank you for tuning in and thank you gina for rambling with me today of course i don't have social media because outside people scare me but i believe you do <laughs> yes uh very understandably so um so my twitter is gina gemini gemini is spelled with g-e-m-e-n-i an e in the middle and feel free to follow me i will definitely be tweeting about Star Wars, figure skating, and anything Joss Whedon. So if any of that interests you, feel free to follow me, and I will obviously be talking about this podcast as well. If you enjoy our nonsensical ramblings, please feel free to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes, and please rate all the episodes that we put out so the world can know how great we are. I am Tyg, and we will see you again next week for The Nevers Podcast. Have you seen Yuri on Ice? Yes, oh my god. Another one of my obsessions. <laughs> I knew you would. <laughs> the Nevers podcast is not endorsed by Mutant Enemy, Warner Media Entertainment, or any of its subsidiaries, including HBO, Home Box Office, and is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. The Nevers and all names, pictures, and audio clips are registered trademarks and or copyrights of their respective copyright holders. <laughs>